Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and lifts you up. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. But you know, Jesus said that we're supposed to love our enemies. But does that mean we have to be nice to them? Like, let's say my enemy was about to get hit by a bus. Am I obligated to warn them? I mean, I'm not driving the bus. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not actually behind the like, but I see it. Maybe it's going to happen. Am I obligated to tell them about it, or do I just sort of let it roll? And Gee, that's an unfortunate incident. See? We have this thing. Well, when I was a kid, I only experienced, I never really got bullied a lot, but I did get picked on some for my weight when I was a kid because I was a little husky, and I actually wore huskies from Sears and Roebuck. Anybody remember huskies? Sure did, man. And um, I wore huskies. And my grandmother was nice. She said I was big-boned, but I knew better. Dinosaurs are big bones. I, I weighed 125 pounds in first grade. That was fat. So I knew the difference. But, um, but, so I got picked on for my weight once in a while, but there was only one time that I can remember that I actually got beat up. And it happened between I, my, my kindergarten and first grade summer. And I was about five, six years old, little kid. And my best buddy, Kevin, and I, we were at the park that was near our neighborhood. And I know some of you might find this hard to believe, but like our moms actually let us do that. We went and played at five, six years old. And uh, I, only sh- I just showed up for dinner, obviously. I was overweight, so you know, I made it for dinner every night. <laughs> My mom wasn't worried. <laughs> so we're over at the park, and uh, there was some kind of like arts and crafts thing going on. I, that's, I don't remember who was running it, but I know we were doing our paints. And we're there and pa- painting our paints. And this, this fifth grade kid, which I'm in kindergarten, he's fifth grade, so he's huge. He came to me. And I can't remember what I did or what happened, but he, got, he dared me. I dare you to touch that paintbrush to my nose. And I remember, I was like, that's dumb. Why would I want to do that? But he kept egging me on, and so eventually I touched the paintbrush to his nose, and he shoved me to the ground really hard, and my best friend Kevin ran. <laughs> Gotta love that. And because he was skinny, he ran faster than I did. And so that left me alone in the park with my attacker, who chased me through the park. And to be honest, he never punched me, so I don't want you to think it was worse than it was. But he certainly pushed me down and scared me a good bit. And I ran home, and my mom, I'm crying, and I'm dirty. And my mom's like, take a bath. It'll make you feel better. So she made, made me take a bath in the middle of the day and took a bath and felt better. You know, though, going to school that year, I had to go to school. I had to, Tigard Elementary School was a small little school. And we were K through 6th grade. So I had to spend the next two years with that kid. Can I tell you that every time I saw him, my stomach turned? I'd see him down the hallway. I'd go the other hallway. I mean, I did my best to not be stuck in the same room with that guy. Can I tell you honestly that had he gotten hit by a bus, I would not have mourned the loss. I think I would have been happy. You see, here's the deal. It might come as a surprise, but God sees your enemies differently than you do. God doesn't see victim and bully. 
He doesn't see oppressor and oppressed. He sees broken person whom I love and broken person whom I love. He sees two broken people. And you see, it's a shocker to us because we think that, well, you know, I'm more lovable. So, of course, God's going to love me better because I'm easier to love. And it's probably that guy's giving him a really hard time to love. I mean, it's got to be hard to love that guy. God's probably working on it. But me, it's easy. And, and it's a really shocking reality to us to come to understand that God actually loves the worst among us as much as he loves the best among us. And we come to the book of Jonah, and we see this guy. <laughs> Jonah was asked to basically go preach to, and in essence, love, warn, give an opportunity to, to change his enemies. And he had this incredibly difficult task. And I love Jonah because what it does is it exposes me. This little book, only four chapters, one thin page in my Bible. It is so dense, and my heart is laid open, and all of my motives and all of my prejudices, all of my junk gets exposed in this one little teeny book called Jonah. Now, I want to get it right, off the, right out in the open. I believe Jonah was a real guy. And I believe that Jonah really got swallowed by a big fish. A whale, big fish, I don't know, whatever. Something big ate him. But I believe that that was real. Why do I believe that that was real? Because I know some really smart people question it. And they want to call it a, you know, just an allegory or something like that. Let me tell you something. Here's why I believe it. Primarily the reason is this. Because I wasn't there, right? So I, I can't really say that I saw it happen. But Jesus did. And Jesus believed that it was real. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus said this, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights. Actually, there's a slide there. You with me? Okay, great. And so as Jonah will be the Son of Man, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So if Jesus assumed that Jonah was real, I'm going to assume that Jonah was real. You with me? I think we have it on pretty good authority. If Jesus said it was real, it's probably real. So let's go with that. Um, but the story, you understand, was written down. So Jonah was a real guy. He really got swallowed by a fish. But the story of Jonah got written. And as a story written, the writer wrote it as a satire. And a satire is meant to be kind of comical, but in a sad sort of way. You know, those kind of comedies. And, and, it's, and he uses some different literary techniques to sort of make his humor kind of come out. And one of the things that the writer of Jonah does is, is he writes with contrasts. So he, he contrasts these um, almost, uh, you know, contrasts these characters so that we can see them. Like, for example, you have Jonah who is supposed to be this God-fearing, righteous prophet. And yet, he's a jerk. <laughs> and he's contrasted with these pagan sailors who are supposed to be salt of the earth, crusty, cussing, hard-drinking, womanizing, sailor kind of guys. And you know what? They're actually really sensitive. 
And, and you put the two of these together and you say, what's going on here? Another contrast is you have Jonah, he's contrasted, he's supposed to be, he's a God-fearing man, so, so Jonah should be like really responsive to God, don't you think? God says, hey, Jonah, I want you to do this. Oh, sure, God, I'm in because I'm an obedient man. <laughs> no. And that's contrasted with these Ninevites who we'll learn in a moment were really, really bad. And you know that all it took was five words. Jonah's sermon to the Ninevites, five words. And the entire city came to their knees in repentance towards God. You see the contrast? Like Jonah should have been the one quick to repent. And it took a big storm and a big fish and a lot of trouble to get him back on track. The bad Ninevites, five words. They're right there. They're all gods. Putty in his hands. You say, what's going on? Another contrast that the writer makes is a contrast between Jonah's lack of compassion, because he was hard-hearted, hateful, and you Contrast that with God's great compassion. And God is actually, surprisingly, God is compassionate towards Jonah, this self-righteous turkey. And he's compassionate towards the really wicked, bad Ninevites. And you see the compassion of God just displayed on these pages and these words. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. And so as we, as we come to this, you say, um, here's Jonah now. God calls him. Let's open up the book. We go to Jonah chapter 1. I'll just read the first two verses. Now, I want to give you a heads up. We're literally only going to get six verses in today. So that's all the farther we're going. So here's the first two verses. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now you would think, awesome. I have it on authority of God to go tell my enemies how much they're going to die. You're going to fry. That ought to be a dream come true. No, you don't know the Assyrians. So Nineveh was the capital city of the nation of Assyria. And at this point, Assyria was the dominant world force. They were power-hungry, bloodthirsty, conquering, oppressive peoples. And they were literally steamrolling the known world. And they were, and they were abusive. And in fact, matter of fact, they, they, had, they had been... Um, oppressing the nation of Israel, which was Jonah's nation, oppressing them for decades now, making them pay tribute. You know what tribute was? Tribute is a nice way of saying blackmail. Basically, the principle of tribute is, hey, uh, we're going to kill you, but if you give us money, we won't kill you right now. That's the principle behind tribute. And the Israelites lived under that thumb with the Assyrians for decades so you can only imagine the kind of angst that would foment in Jonah's heart when he says, go to Nineveh. Not only that, the Ninevites were not just wicked, not just bad, but they were violent. Like we're talking head-hunting, scalp-you sort of violent. Like we're proud 
of our violence. In fact, we have some historical writings. There's an obelisk that we have that has, uh, in, it's written in Akkadian, and, which was the language of these people way back then. And, and we have some of their writings there. Some of the kings um, wrote about their conquests. Uh, two of the more famous, better-known kings are Ashurnasipal and Ashurnabal. Oh, yeah, I'm going to get that wrong. Ashurbanipal. Say that ten times fast. But Ashurnasipal II called himself, and I know you're looking at that, you're going, those look like the same guy. But listen, you got to give these ancient artists some cred, okay? They're writing on a rock. Hello? I don't know how much more you can make it any different. So believe it or not, they're two different guys. And you have Ashurnasipal II. He called himself the trampler of all enemies. After conquering a city, he said this, I flayed as many nobles as had rebelled against me and draped their skins across the pile of corpses. Nice guy, huh? How about this one? Ashurbanipal, who was one of the more powerful Assyrian kings, recorded this after a battle. He said, with their blood, I dyed the mountain red like wool. I cut off the heads of their fighters. I burnt the adolescent boys and girls. After another battle, he said, I captured many troops alive, and I cut off their arms, cut off their noses and ears, gouged out their eyes. I hung their heads on trees around the city. Real nice guys, huh? Just the kind of guys you girls want to bring home to meet mom and dad. Dad, I met a guy. He's out in the driveway sharpening his knife. You know, you're like, oh, maybe not. Not quite the guy you want to bring home. These guys are, the point is, they're violent. And they like it that way. And these are the people that God said, hey, Jonah, I want you to go to them and preach to them. How would you do, friends? (laughs) Now, Jonah, let's talk about Jonah. Who is he? Jonah is a prophet of God. He's a, a guy who worked and ministered and preached in the nation of Israel. Now, quick backstory, real quick. Israel was initially formed as a nation, and they were united for a period of time. They had three kings. The first three kings of Israel led a united kingdom. So you have King Saul, and then King David. You know David and Goliath, David. And then Solomon followed David. And under Solomon, Israel experienced its zenith, like it, it reached its apex in power, in prestige, in uh, wealth, like they, they hit the top under Solomon's leadership. After Solomon died, the nation experienced a bloody civil war from which they never recovered. And they became divided into a northern kingdom, which retained the name Israel, and their capital city was Samaria. And then the southern kingdom took on the name Judah, and their capital city remained Jerusalem. And so oftentimes when you're reading in your Old Testament and you read about Israel, you're probably reading about the northern kingdom. Now you also need to know that the southern kingdom, Judah, they, I mean, they weren't all good, but they weren't all bad. And they had a lot of good years there where they followed God, they obeyed God, and you know, good things were, go- good things were happening there. But they had some rough ones. And towards the end, they certainly got rough, but they were good for the most part. Israel, however, was never good. They started off bad, and they went to worse, and they went to very bad. 
from their inception, they were an idolatrous people. They were, they were living like the pagan nations around them. They were involved in gross immorality, all, human sacrifice, bad, 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 bad. Now, all those years that Israel is away from God, God in his mercy is reaching out to these people. You want to say thank you for his mercy, anybody? Can you see God's mercy in your life? You know, no matter how bad you get, man, God's merciful. God's reaching out. Can you look back in your life? Can you see it? Can you see how he provided for you here and protected you there? And you should have died there, but you didn't. And, you, and you know, you see the hand of God. He's merciful, merciful towards you. And God is merciful towards the people of Israel. He's reaching out to them as bad as they are. He's reaching out to the people of Israel. And he's doing it through his prophets. And the prophets are preachers. And, and God raised up some powerhouses. Guys like Elijah. You heard of Elijah? Calling down fire from heaven. You heard of Elisha? The next guy, Elisha, raising the dead. I mean, powerhouses. Did it turn Israel back to God? No. And then you have other prophets like Jonah. And Jonah preached at the same time as two other prophets, Hosea and Amos. So if you want to get to know Jonah, I would encourage you to read the books of Hosea and Amos. They're found in your Old Testament. So we have their books right here. Now, Hosea and Amos and Jonah were contemporaries preaching at the exact same time Let's look at their messages. Hosea had a very painful message. The message was this. God asked Hosea, a good man, to marry a prostitute. And she was unfaithful to him. Her name was Gomer. And Hosea had to remain faithful to his wife, though she was unfaithful to him. And the whole point was that Gomar's, or rather, Hosea's tragic marriage was meant to be a picture to Israel. God is the faithful husband. Israel is the unfaithful wife. Do you see it? What a painful life Hosea must have had to lead. Can you imagine that? But that's this man's ministry. His ministry, his message was his, his life. His message was his marriage, in a sense, his bad marriage. And then you have Amos. He's preaching at the same time. Amos is a completely different character. Amos is a country bumpkin from the sticks, rough and tumble, uneducated farmer guy who uses really bombastic language. Like he's tweeting all kinds of negative stuff. And he is preaching, and I kid you not, just wait. So he's preaching. You know what he calls the women of Samaria? Now, you know, remember from the map. Samaria is the capital city, so that's the cultural center of Israel. That's where all the high, you know, the high mighty of society are. You know what he's doing? He calls the women of Samaria, you cows. Calls him, called your wife a cow, man. That's what he did. Amos is rough. He is railing. He's railing against the injustice. He's railing against the materialism. I mean, he is both guns blazing. So now you see Hosea, he's got this tragic life. And, and his life is his message. Israel, you're unfaithful, but God has been faithful. And you have Amos, and he's got the... 
he's beating up on him. What's Jonah's message? Well, that's interesting. If you go to 2 Kings chapter 14, we get a little snapshot into Jonah's ministry back in Samaria. 2 Kings chapter 14, it tells us this. Let me just read it real quick. It says, Jeroboam, in the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Of course, because they were all evil. This is Israel, remember? So anytime you see a king in Israel, just assume they're a bad guy. They were all bad guys. Jeroboam does evil in the eyes of the Lord, did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. So we have two Jeroboams that ruled in the northern kingdom, Jeroboam 1 and Jeroboam 2, and this is Jeroboam 2, and we're told that Jeroboam 2, he never bothered to turn away from all the sins that Jeroboam 1 started, and so he's just as bad as the rest of them. But look at this. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath, which is the northern boundary of Israel, to the Dead Sea, which is the southern boundary of Israel. And he did this in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant, Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. What is going on? See, I, I've been scratching my head over this one. And I admit, I don't have a, I know there's something in here. Like, there's another sermon brewing on this. Just this one alone, I'll just warn you. I just don't know what it is yet. But, 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 but I'm like, okay, wait a second. Hosea, Hosea is preaching this, this tragic life about the unfaithfulness of Israel and the faithfulness of God. Amos is just, swinging and punching as hard as he can on the sins and the injustices and stuff in society. And Jonah is going, all will be well. Expand the kingdom, Jeroboam. Go north, go south. Be prosperous. It's going to be great. I, I, I don't understand it. I don't understand how Jonah can be prophesying positive things to this really nasty guy when his counterparts are doing their part, like they're, they're trying to call Israel to greater things, and Jonah's like, it's going to be beautiful. <laughs> I don't understand that. But I do know this, that God will do whatever it takes to wake up his people. And I wonder if somehow God is trying to wake up the people of Israel. Because remember, this is a wicked people. This is a people in rebellion, living away from God. And God, I mean, he's trying. Hey, I'm going to give him Elijah, call down fire, no change. I'm going to give him Elisha, raise the dead, no change. I'm going to give him, I'm going to make Hosea do this and marry that, and, and, and no change. And I'm going, to, I'm going to make Amos on fire and no change. And so God comes to Jonah. Hey, hey Jonah, um, you like preaching positive things to wicked people? How about I send you to Nineveh? That's as best I got. I know this. We don't automatically change unless God introduces something in our lives that makes us want to change. And usually that's something very drastic, something very painful. 
Sometimes, isn't it? Because our natural tendency is to just float and take the easy road until God introduces something that forces change. A number of years ago, I went to the doctor, and the doctor said I had high blood pressure, and I'm going to have to put you on medication. I'm like, oh, no, I don't, I don't want to take pills. And so I begged the doctor, give me six months. I was motivated. Cut out salt, cut down fat, started to exercise more, like lost a few pounds. Right? I'm, oh, man, I'm, there's no way. I was motivated. Now, in full disclosure, I'm taking blood pressure medication at the moment. <laughs> But it's a smaller dose than it would have been. So there you go. Victory. Um, you know what? Like five, six, five, six years ago, five, six years ago, my, my wife and I, our marriage had become very unhealthy. And you know what? I wasn't doing anything about it. I was actually making it unhealthier. And it took my wife threatening to leave me. And it took you, New River Church, putting me on a sabbatical, kind of a forced time out to actually wake me up, and I'm glad it happened. I needed to be motivated, because otherwise, you just drift. There's no real reason to change until God introduces something in our lives that says, oh no, now is the time. And the best I've got is that God is desperately trying to get the attention of his people Israel. He's desperately trying also to get the attention of Jonah. And so he calls Jonah, to go preach to these Ninevites over there. And what does Jonah do? Look at verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So two different times in this one verse it says he fled from the Lord. It's like a running sandwich sort of. He starts off running, da 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 ends running. See that in verse 3 there? Twice he's running. In other words, Jonah is, well, he's running. And it says he's running from God. So Jonah doesn't quite understand this really important thing about God. God is omnipresent. You can't run from God. God is everywhere all the time. All of God is everywhere all the time. So regardless of where you go, that's where God is. Now, that's good news and bad news. The good news is this. When you're crying alone in your room and your heart is absolutely crushed and broken, guess what? All of God is with you in that room. And when you're celebrating your absolute best day and you're on top of the world, all of God rejoices with you. Not just a part of God. God's all in with you. Now, the bad news is, God's with you. <laughs> and let's just say there's times where you know you wished God would just take a vacation and maybe look the other way, just pretend like, but God doesn't do that, does he? There's no way to run from the presence of God. And so Jonah's hopping on a boat to run from God. It's kind of silly. <laughs> you know, one of the best things that you and I can do is Figure out how it is that we run. Here's a, a point, a principle for us today to think about. All of us run. Running is common to every human being. Why do we do it? I don't know. It doesn't really make much sense if you stop and think about it. God is the source of life. He's life. Why would we run from life? <laughs> but we do, don't we? Matter of fact, Isaiah chapter 53, it says that all we like sheep have gone astray. 
Each of us has turned to his own way. It's a common human condition. You, me, all of us, we run. And the good news is God pursues. We run, God pursues. This is how this works. And one of the best things that you can do for yourself, one of the best ways of self-revelation is for you to discover how it is that you run. How do you run from God? How are you running from God? You know, we think, sometimes we think the obvious culprits, we say, oh yeah, you're alcohol and drugs, like that's running from God. And sure, 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 sure. But let's look a little deeper. How about, how about religion? Religion is a great way to run from God because you know what religion does? It keeps you so busy doing things for God that you actually never know God. Religion is one of the best scams ever concocted by hell. You're running, 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 and completely without an intimate connection with God. Um, bitterness is a great way to run. You know, whatever it was that happened to you years ago, it happened to you. And I, I don't deny the fact that it was bad. I'm sure it was terrible. But you know, whatever it was that happened to you years ago, it's no longer about what happened to you. Now it's about your response to what happened to you. And bitterness lets you still live in it because it gives you this false sense of power, like somehow you're in charge and, you know, you're going to make those people pay and when really it's just killing you. See, you're running. Maybe busyness. Busyness is a great way to run, isn't it? This is one of my favorites. One of my favorites. Because if I'm so busy, then I just don't have the time. Mm. But see, here's the deal. All of us run. The question is, how do you run? That's the question. One of the best things you can do is to figure out how you do it. Jonah gets on a boat and he heads for Tarshish. That's how Jonah runs. And you might wonder, you go, wait a second. Why did God even let Jonah get on that boat to Tarshish? Like God could have, he could have, at Joppa that day, only had one boat there. And it just happened to be going to Nineveh. Sorry, Jonah. But he didn't, did he? There's other boats there. So Jonah has this choice. You know why God gives you the choice? Why? It's this. Because your choices reflect your condition. Your choices reflect the condition of your soul. Your choices are meant to be a mirror into what's really going on in your heart. Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's another way of saying your choices reflect who you are. You want, a, you want a real moment of self-awareness? Take a look at your choices. What did Jonah's choice reveal about his heart? On the surface, it looks like Jonah is this super righteous guy, but clearly he's messed up. The choice revealed that about Jonah. Do you see? God gives you choices to reveal you the condition of your soul. And there's always going to be a boat to Tarshish. Always. <laughs> what does God do when you and I run? Well, one of two things. Sometimes he'll frustrate your plans. Sometimes he will. Have you ever had your plans frustrated? I got the next slide there, actually. Although that's a great verse. All we like sheep have gone astray. Good one. But sometimes when we run, God frustrates 
our plans. Have you ever had a frustrated plan? I'm running, I'm trying to do my thing, and nothing's working out. You know, the boyfriend ends up being a loser, the relationships are a dud, the job is just stupid, the paycheck's never going far enough, like frustration after frustration after frustration. Maybe God is trying to get your attention. Sometimes when we run, God doesn't frustrate our plans, God actually fulfills them. He lets you go to Tarshish. Hey, go be mayor of Tarshish. Go ahead. Have at it. <laughs> he gives you your dreams so that you can discover that it's really a nightmare, and I never actually wanted it in the first place. Anybody ever had a dream come true, and you say, I wish that hadn't come true? <laughs> God does that too sometimes. The truth is, God is merciful. God is compassionate, and God is always at work in your life and mine. Friends, we run, he pursues. We run, he pursues. This is how this works. And sometimes he'll frustrate the plan to wake us up. Sometimes he just gives you the plan to wake you up. But it's always with the goal to wake you up. Always with the goal to bring you to himself. Do you see this about God's incredible heart? Today we're looking at Jonah's backstory. But I, I want to talk about your backstory. What's your backstory? I don't know if God has frustrated your plans or if God has fulfilled all of your dreams. But I know that, like me, you run. I know for me, I'm thankful that God did not fulfill all of my dreams. You know, I used to judge, uh, you, know, you know, the popular pastors. Because, right, I'm a pastor, right? So this is my context. It might not be your context, but it's mine, right? So, hey, I get it. You know, at work, you see somebody getting a better paycheck than you, and, and you want that paycheck because you think you deserve that. I mean, that, and that happens all the time. We're always comparing. So what do pastors compare? Well, we compare popularity and church size and all that stuff, right? So that's me, just keeping it real. Can I tell you that I'm thankful that my dreams have not come true and that I no longer judge those megachurch guys that have moral failing because I believe with all my heart, actually, that if God had fulfilled my dreams, that would be me. That it would have made me a monster. And God is merciful and he's gracious. He knows me better than I know myself. And he's working constantly to, you know, to break and, you know, to humble and to, to shape and to form, and I'm just thankful that he's frustrated a lot of my plans. Aren't you? My point is this. We all run, and God pursues, and sometimes God frustrates our run, and sometimes he lets you have it, but it's always with the intent to wake you up. So God let Jonah get on that boat. He let Jonah think he was heading for Tarshish, and then that's what happened. Look at verse 4. It says, then the Lord, the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and they each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. 
Maybe he'll take notice of us so that we won't perish. Hey, who sent the storm? That's not a trick question. Yeah, God did. Who, who sent the wind? God did. Hey, who made that boat rock? God did. And why did he do it? He's trying to wake him up. He's trying to wake him up. And you notice the sailors? The sailors are these, these, these now, they're not God-fearing men. But, boy, they sure are now, aren't they? <laughs> they're all praying to any God they can find. Please help. They're throwing stuff off the boat. They're like, desperate times call for desperate measures, don't they? Kind of reminds me, of, I had a Jewish friend a few years ago who had a brain tumor. And I was, I was with him one time, and I, I offered, I asked him if I could pray for him. And then I go to pray for him, and then I realized, oh, I'm a Christian, you're a Jew. So I wanted to explain to him, hey, um, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray in the name of Jesus, and uh, that's okay. And his response to me was classic. He goes, whatever works, Reverend. Love it. You know what? When you're dying of a brain tumor, that's not a time to be discussing all the theological references about your prayer life, right? And when you're drowning in an ocean, it's not a time to be, you know, having these kinds of discussions. Can I tell you, maybe this morning, this is a word for someone here. If you're questioning the existence of God and you're questioning the authority of Jesus in your life, really what it reveals is you just have yet to feel the desperation. You don't quite see the flames of hell and how close you are to them. Because in the comfort of your house, the comfort of this nice chair, the comfort of your life, you have the luxury of being able to question God's existence. But can I tell you that a drowning man does not have time to ask about the lifeboat? And what I'm saying is at some point, the God of the universe will begin to move in. He is trying to get your attention. And if you've not woken up to it yet, I pray that this is the wake-up call today. So these guys are desperately above board. Now you got to think, I want to ask this question. The writer of Jonah is writing to an intended audience, isn't he? Remember? Let's, you got to think through this a little bit. Like he's writing the story for someone, isn't he? We get Jonah was real and all that, but he's writing it down for somebody. Like, every author has an intended audience. Nicholas Sparks, he writes for lonely middle-aged women, right? He's the, he's the chick flick king right there. I mean, uh, you know, you got, you, got, um, you got Stephen King, he writes for creepy people. He does, he just does. He writes creepy novels for creepy people, and if you like Steve King, I'm not calling you creepy, but you do kind of have a creepy thing in you that wants to read those books, but anyway. That's Stephen King. Or you have like the American, like take the American Medical Journal. Who's that written for? Medical professionals, right? You know, my dad was an engineer his whole career, and he dealt with plastics. Do you know that there's actually such a thing as a plastics journal? My dad subscribes to the plastics journal, right? He loves reading about extrusions and all that stuff. I'm like, oh, dad. The thing is, is anybody can read the plastics journal. Hey, have at it if you're into that. But it's written for engineers, right? Anybody can read any book if you want to, but it's got an intended audience. That's my point. Who's the intended audience for Jonah? It's Israel. You can't forget that. 
Remember who Israel is and remember where they're at. They're numb. They're lost. They're rebellious. They're dead. They need a wake-up call. Fire from heaven, calling your wife a cow. You know, none of that stuff seemed to be working and waking them up. And so God goes, okay, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And he's using this man Jonah as a wake-up call. Do you see it? Israel is Jonah. Israel is Jonah, sound asleep in the bottom of a sinking boat, and they don't realize it. And I'm saying, you are Jonah, I am Jonah. You could be sound asleep in a sinking boat right now and not even know it. Do you see the heart of God that would wake you up? And then you come here to verse 6, and I love verse 6, because the, the ship captain, remember, salt of the earth, crusty, seafaring guy. He comes down and he wakes Jonah up and you see his words? His words are classic. Let the words of the sea captain sink into your heart. Wake up and call on your God. You see him? The sea captain, wake up! Before we all drown, wake up and call on your God. Man, Jonah's in bad shape if it takes a pagan to remind him to pray. Let me update that. When the world has to beg the church to pray, the church has a problem. Like prayer should be our first response. It's not like our last reaction. You know, we, prayer is just, it's our lifeblood. And here you got this pagan... Um, sea captain, begging Jonah to wake up and pray. Please, Jonah, pray, pray. Rise up to your purpose, Jonah. Step into the call that God has for you, Jonah. Come on, Jonah. Get up there, buddy. We need you. And my friend, the world is saying the same thing to you and me. Rise up, church of God. Rise up. Seize your destiny. Take the authority that Jesus has died for you to have and begin to live it. Don't sully your life and don't waste it running after all these silly things. No, rise up, wake up, and call on your God. The world is begging us to do that, friends. Listen, I, uh, I don't know how you've been running. I just know that we all do. And... Um, I want to give you the opportunity this morning to say, I'm done running. Friends, I can't tell you, there's, there's such a freeing, it is so freeing when you finally say, I'm done running. Bo said something yesterday that I thought was incredibly insightful. He, he said, um, it's exhausting to run from God. And that really triggered that in me because Jonah fell asleep. You notice Jonah? He's sound asleep. How can Jonah sleep in this storm? Well, it's exhausting to run from God. It takes an awful lot of work to resist his call in my life. It takes a lot of work to deny his love, to deny his existence. It takes a lot of work. It's just easier to wake up and call on your God. My friend, that's the challenge before you and me this morning. Will you do it? You done running? You done running. Thanks for listening today. 
If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.